0: welcome to the metabolic link a podcast that explores the common thread of metabolism in health and disease this is where science meets society welcome to the metabolic link i'm your host dom d'agostino and today we're interviewing dr molly Malouf. molly has an extensive background in medicine and also advising for other companies Uh, She did her MD at the University of Illinois Medical School. And then she's also uh, teaching a pioneering course in health span in the wellness department at Stanford Medical School. Uh, She has worked as an advisor and a consultant for over 50 companies on biotechnology, on digital health, on personalized medicine, an extensive list of companies here. Uh, We had a great conversation. We touched on many topics related to biotechnology and personalized medicine, and uh, I'm excited to share this content with you, and I hope you enjoy it and share it with others. Thank you. Maybe let's like kick off with uh, tools that you use personally, like in your clinical practice, but also uh, in advising and things like that. Sure. So.
1: It's not surprising that I advise a lot of the companies that I uh, I do because I actually use these tools in my practice. And I've also taught about these tools in my course I taught at Stanford for three years. Mm-hmm. So basically... Um, I've been interested in like how do you optimize health instead of just fix sickness for the last at least 10 20 years of my life. And um what I've come to realize is that you know a lot of what people experience is their day-to-day existence and that's your sleep, your stress, your movement and your and your food, right? And so these are the biggest drivers of mitochondrial function and mitochondrial dysfunction. Is like and if you don't monitor them, you're basically like If you do monitor them, you're actually able to see into a person's lifestyle. So continuous monitoring of blood sugar with continuous glucose monitors, Um, I use um, Abbott Freestyle Libre or a Dexcom. Although there's a company coming along called Saba that's going to kind of blow everyone out of the water in like 10 years Um, and maybe five. And then there's another device called Hanu Health, which is a wearable polar heart strap that's connected to an app that uses uh, a continuous heart rate variability monitoring system. And it's taken me years to find something that's got a form factor that people want to use and something that is... like completely mobile telemetry basically. And so I love this device. I put it on my computer. Like I literally have it, like I'll I'll wear it and I'll, and I'll do calls with it. And I could actually see, am I breathing deeply? Am I breathing Uh, in my chest? Am I talking in my throat? Or am I actually breathing with my belly? And like really getting your body centered is so hard to do when you're on nonstop calls. And so stress monitoring is really key for people who are highly stressed. Um, then I now, also is that
0: just to interrupt is that a chest strap? Or- it's a chest strap. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, we've done some research with the Polar V800 and then Aura. I mean, there's, but yeah, I I think uh, a chest strap is really needed to get that granularity, that level, that that really good signal for HR. Yeah. Okay. And
1: I, and I think that the Aura ring is good. I don't think it's perfect, but yeah. it it certainly gives you at least some idea. It seems to do a pretty good job reflecting how I feel. Um, I wouldn't say it's like the best way to test HRV, but it definitely, I like the snapshot that I get on. I just like the insight into how much I'm moving throughout the day and how much I'm sleeping. So like, I, I feel like the sleep stages, I don't know how accurate they are, but I definitely notice that it it just gives me an idea of how much I'm sleeping and when I'm sleeping. And that, that actually is really helpful for my patients. I also use the platform heads up health. And it's a great, um, I'm, now I'm an advisor of Hanu. I'm an advisor of heads up. I'm an advisor of levels. So just like conflict of interest is out there. But, um, the reason why I'm an advisor of all these companies is because I was using all these things in like the rudimentary versions I could get. And I was like hacking them like 10, like in 2014, I was using CGMs that I was ordering directly from Abbott. You know, I was using first beat from, um, from Vinland and I was just like I've always been obsessed with wearables because I've, I've been using them for a long, I had a pedometer in medical school, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I I think that where we're heading is a movement where doctors can actually have access to their patients' lifestyles and can give them very specific lifestyle recommendations and provide reports on their health based on these data streams.
0: Yeah. Super important. Uh, I was a chair for American Epilepsy Society, uh, special interest group. And the idea of using a CGM, even for monitoring people with epilepsy on a ketogenic diet, which is the clinical application of a ketogenic diet is like super important. And it's like, they haven't even thought of that before, you know, it was mentioned at an international conference. It's like, yeah, why don't, why aren't we using this technology, uh, to monitor, you know, patients, uh, that need to adhere? Because if you're on a ketogenic diet, you don't have any fluctuations at all in glycemia. And that's, you know, for better, for worse, that's good in the context for medical, but maybe we can talk about, is it, is it, is that ideal for optimizing the patient who doesn't have epilepsy or for other, other disorders? You know, it might actually be good to have some fluctuations in glycemia and insulin instead of suppressing it all the time.
1: I mean, I definitely find myself in a place where at least in the last three years, I've learned a lot more about my health that through the challenges of the pandemic And you really learn about health when you get challenged, because health is the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. So I was like monitoring my health throughout this entire pandemic and my client's health. And I was really impressed with how um, my body really changed when I got extraordinarily stressed out and borderline burned out um, at the end of 2020. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I, I was eating really low carb. And it just wasn't working for me the way it had in the past. Like I actually noticed that my body was just like, no, you need carbs. And it was a realization that like, even though I knew that I should probably carb up, I had not been doing it because everyone had gained weight during the pandemic, including me. And I was trying to lose some pounds and it wasn't working. And so that's really when I, um, when it was actually around this time I was working on, um, this, sorry to
0: interrupt when you say it's not working. Is that an objective biomarker that you're oh. talking about or how you feel? So I just want I would to clarify that.
1: I was physically, um, so here's the way I'm going to describe this, like, um, in terms of like sort of first principles, like if you're sending the body winter signals and famine signals, because there isn't food available, even though your body knows that there's food, I mean, you know, there's food, but your body's getting the signal that like, there may be scarcity in the world. Um, because essentially when there was summer seasons, we would have more carbohydrates available and the winter would come around, there'd be less food available. So our bodies get these messages from the outside world. And we're just, our cells are literally doing their best job at interpreting what's happening on the outside. So I think that the level of stress that I was under and the amount of ketosis that I was trying to get into was actually causing some problems for my body to adapt to the demands of the stress I was experiencing. And I was also socially isolated at the time. So I was living alone in Florida um, and I was teaching at Stanford and there was just a lot of my students were experiencing a lot of mental health issues. And yeah. so it was like, and even I felt like my mind was not normal for being isolated for a few months. And so I just felt like when I started eating carbs again, I was like, oh my God, like my nervous system feels like it's safe. And that's when I realized that there is something to be said about the signaling of carbohydrates as safety signals. Like there's food available in the environment, so you can relax. And also, um, you know, I was, I, I didn't really stop heavy lifting this entire time. And so it just seemed like the way I kind of conceptualize this in the book that I've written is like, you have a stress cup and you can only fill it with so many things before it's going to overflow. And like, we know that mitohermetic stressors like fasting, like ketosis, like intense exercise, these are all good for you in the right dose. But when they start layering them on top of each other, and then you add a significant societal stressor plus social isolation, now you're basically overflowing the stress cup and the body is starting to get into a state of of feeling constant threat. And so I think the biggest question in chronic disease today is how do we get a body that's in a, that's been stuck in chronic threat out of chronic threat? Because it looks like a lot of these chronic metabolic diseases, including things like chronic COVID, including things like um, chronic fatigue syndrome, and a lot of other chronic illnesses, um, people's bodies gets and this is according to Martin. And this is sort of a um, Robert Navio's Robert work. This concept of the cell danger response, where the mitochondrial function will shift from like what I would call peacetime metabolism to wartime metabolism, where your, your cells are like, I don't feel safe. So I'm going to change my metabolism to hold on to any calories and any, anything I can find in order to feel safer. Now this is cortisol, right? So if cortisol goes up, your blood sugar is going to go up. Um, at the time when I realized I needed to start eating more carbs, my cortisol had been high for months because of the pandemic. So it was starting to go down. And it was like, by the time that I'd measured it, it was very, very low. And so when you have low cortisol, you actually have, you struggle to maintain blood sugar at all. And so yeah. this is one of the biggest challenges for people who are like, like me, for example, and, and also a lot of women, when you don't know your blood levels of these markers, and you're just like trying to hack your metabolism, kind of flying blind, you won't actually, you you may actually end up feeling worse. And that was me in this situation. And this is a lot of women, by the way, who try to lose weight when they're under a lot of stress. It's like your body can't, your body, your body is trying to protect you. It wants you to hold on to calories and it's going to do everything it can to change its metabolism so that you hold on to as many calories as possible. So this is why I was not losing weight with keto. I was feeling worse. I was waking up in the morning with headaches and it's because my blood sugar was low, regardless of what I was eating. And then I was trying to push it lower by eating, by going into ketosis.
0: Well, what I see, so thanks for sharing, like that insight. Uh a lot of women who say they have a reaction a physiological reactionary response to fasting in the ketogenic diet they're often doing it in the context of a calorie deficit yep. and even all, often over exercising so yeah. I you know, think they, that was
1: me by the way I definitely think I was eating too little and I was exercising too yeah. much
0: so I would argue that you know if if you are doing intermittent fasting or a ketogenic diet and you control for calories and protein especially that yeah. uh The the data in the the world of epilepsy where we have like randomized trials and things like that with the ketogenic diet does show amenorrhea is five times five times more likely in females. So and that's actually more or less with weight stable uh subjects. You know, well that makes Um, sense,
1: right? That's kind of like relative energy deficiency of sport, right?
0: Yeah. But the confounder could be like epilepsy because there's changes in the brain and things like that too, but Uh, but I do think, you know, there are definitely, uh, low glucose and low insulin will produce physiological effects in in women that, that are not, uh, observed in men or overtly noticeable in men. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I know that, you know, you have written a book that really delves into is really like the the optimization protocol for females. And to my knowledge, there's really not a book like that on the market. And, and after reading it, it gave me a lot of insight. I have a whole couple pages of notes and I had to go look oh, up <laughs> things on that because I get I probably get more emails from females than males uh in particular yeah. you know through intermittent fasting and ketogenic diet so uh i was wondering in working with patients or advising companies what blood tests or hom- hormonal panels do you recommend are you doing are you like double clicking on those hormones with like a dutch test mm-hmm. for for or do you just kind of start from a broad no, no i picture? do
1: both. i do both okay okay i mean it's really important um like i i just saw a oh, a uh, women's Dutch test recently, and she's hitting her early forties and she's really busy and she might be maybe 43 or so. And, um, and her progesterone and her estrogen levels are really low right now, like really low. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. Um, and so we're just trying to really troubleshoot and find out what what's going on with her. But um, you know, when you, w- a lot of women that I also have seen experience problems with their hormones have been women who are over-exercising and under eating specifically bodybuilders. I've seen, um, women who are like exercising seven days a week and, um, eating and they're doing like cutting cycles. And they're like, why am I not losing weight? And it's like, well, women, women's bodies have a different biological imperative than men. Right? Like men are really designed to go out and survive and fight and, and to like gather food for, and like kill animals and keep us alive. Right. And women are really designed to create life. And so women's bodies, like if we don't like turn down our metabolisms when there's famine, like how are we going to keep babies alive around us? Right. Like, how are we going to be able to do that? So this is the kind of cool thing about women is that we actually get, I, I really think thyroid dysfunction is almost adaptive. I think it literally is an mm-hmm. adaptation to stress for not, and I wouldn't say that all of it is, but like by by yeah. no means like the ha- Hashimoto's is, I wouldn't call that adaptive, but um, cause I really think that's mostly, you know, there's a lot of gut dysfunction in our country, but I do think that there's something to be said about when women get stressed out enough and, and their thyroid starts becoming dysfunctional. It's like, maybe it's because we're trying to actually save calories for keeping the tribe alive, you know,
0: like low T3 or reverse T3 you're, you're yeah. thinking like normal. Uh, or maybe even low t- uh, thyroid stimulating hormone. So, what what would you what are some observations that you have seen in athletes, particularly maybe female bodybuilders who are uh, restricting calories too much or protein or have or over exercising? What, what yeah. is the telltale like thyroid hormone? Well, I mean, see?
1: the the bigger thing that I see is I mean, there's a lot of subclinical hypothyroidism. There's a lot of doctors who just underestimate how how much that can affect your health. Yeah. So that's really common. And that's basically like, it's not clinical hypothyroidism, but it's really close. And so you'll see um, TSH go up. You'll see thyroid hormones go down. And like, I've got these optimal ranges that I learned from a doctor, um, Richard Lee, and he would look at athletes and just find out like, where do athletes perform at their best? And um, and it just like the, most people would, who are running subclinical hypothyroidism will feel a lot better with a little bit of thyroid hormone. Um, I don't do high doses. I do custom compounded thyroid medicine. But, um, and, and, you know, cause too much thyroid hormones and you're going to uh, yeah. end up with complications. Yeah. but, um, but basically the other thing that I see is there's a lot of relative energy deficiency of sport. Um, a lot of young women are really, un- I mean, I've seen, I've seen young women in their twenties who are definitely under consuming calories and definitely over exercising and their organic acid tests, their urine, organic acid tests look like garbage. They look like old ladies. Like they look like very aged mm. and it's really sad because you're looking at this person's, you know, organic acid profile of their body and they're, they've got ma- major mitochondrial dysfunction. They've got all sorts of gut dysfunction. Their, their bodies are basically in total survival mode because they're not eating enough food. And so it's surprising how that they can even function normally because yeah. you're like, how can you possibly be expe- like, be experiencing this level of, of health? Yeah. You And know, there's, there's so many eating disorders in young athletes. Yeah. Um, it's really and males
0: crazy. too, and like males. males. Yeah, actually, we just reviewed a paper in uh, males that have, you know, uh, essentially osteopenia, osteoporosis, yeah. and are oh, yeah. breaking I've seen legs that running. And do, these females, are they uh, amenorrheic? And do you yeah. measure insulin? And is their insulin like uh, basically tanked? Like they're, they're
1: everything's low and everything's they're low. definitely amenorrheic. And that, I mean, that's really the I mean, I've seen this, and also a lot of women who are um, in their 30s who are just like, Oh, I'm going to start biohacking. And then they, so they lose their period because their body fat's yeah. low. I mean, when yeah. you, when you start doing fasting and ketosis and, and exercising at the same time, you're going to lose weight. If you're, if you're like, you know, if you're naturally lean, you, you get leaner. And these are girls who don't naturally lean. Yeah. And I was like, you guys, you can't just lose your period. You know, like you need your bone density for aging because what will kill you if you hit past yeah. 65 is a fall. And that's the one one thing that not enough people when they're young really, really think about is like, you have to build your body with when you're young so that you're ready for process, which is why you need to lift weights, which is why you need those strong muscles and you need those strong bones and hormone dysfunction when you're young can rear its head when you're old. And it's just, you know,
0: metabolic currency. You want to build like as much muscle as possible. Like every year I do like a a strength audit and I don't like my weight is plus or minus five pounds in like the last, you know, t- couple deck decades or like decade or something. Yeah. And I don't, I want to maintain that yeah. to prevent age-related sarcopenia. Yeah. And I think it's like almost more important for women to do weight-bearing exercise and strength training and, uh, and less important. I mean, society, uh, is all about being lean, I guess, but for women, I think it could be downright dangerous, especially oh, yeah. the hormone changes and even changes to the face. I mean, um, you know, when I get down to like, you know, below 210 or whatever, my face looks very drawn and I look oh, older. Yeah. And Whereas if I'm, uh, well-fed and up about five pounds, like I look younger because my face fills out yeah. and it's like, <laughs> so maybe talk about the link between metabolic health and objective biomarkers and sure. mental health and then transition. I would like to hear like your kind of summary on the importance of relationships too, yeah. and how it ties into all this.
1: I mean, so I, I don't know why it, it like some things occur to me and then it just becomes more normal for people to just think about this, but you just can't separate the mind and the body. Like consciousness is not this thing that's in our head. It's, it's in all of our cells. It's like, it's part of the flow of energy throughout our bodies. Every single cell has mitochondria that are sensing and integrating the environment, just like your mind, just like the senses you have, like your cells are sensing and integrating. So like when I made that, connection, I was like, oh my gosh, like the entire concept we have of psychiatry being this like separate thing from metabolism and from the body is just, doesn't make any sense to me because I, and I think it's like, we're going to experience a massive renaissance in mental health for a variety of reasons. But one big one is we all just went through a major amount of social isolation, right? Like we have animal Mm -hmm. study evidence, like thousands of animal studies have been run for psychiatric disease models for depression and anxiety and PTSD. And what do they do? They isolate animals, right? They isolate them for long periods of time. And what happens in animals? And by the way, we're an animal too. When you isolate an animal, their cortisol will go up, right? Their HPA axis will become dysfunctional. Their body will go into a state of threat. And when your body's cortisol levels go up, Like anybody who's ever measured a Dutch test and worn a a CGM, you can literally see insulin resistance goes up. Like you have more, your blood sugar goes up. Your insulin sensitivity goes down. It's adaptive and it's adaptive because your body wants to get you out of any threatening situation and it wants to shunt, shunt any blood sugar to the brain. So this is like the most basic programming of our survival, and this is physiology one hundred and one in medical school. And yet, I'm surprised that like we've we it's it's almost like we've all forgotten it. <laughs> but um, so when you look like, when you just know that one specific thing, you can measure now. Now a lot of people are like, oh, cortisol levels do not correlate. Well, I've measured a lot of people's cortisol levels, and I would say that most of the time they're pretty darn useful. Um, but heart rate variability. If you put an HRV monitor on someone and you see that their HRV is very low inevitably you're going to see their blood sugar is going to be spiking more often. And so like this relationship between cortisol and blood sugar is like, you really have to think about the body as this organism that's, that's trying to always survive it's being, it's programmed to survive. And so it will do everything in its power to do that. So, um, some of the things that are kind of interesting about men and women and, and is that, at least according to my, one of my mentors, Sue Carter, and, um, by the way, oxytocin research is like really fun to research, but it's really hard to measure. Um, but she she believes that, um, if you do isolate females, um, their bodies will produce oxytocin and men do not have the same response. So it seems like isolation may be even harder on men. Um, It's somewhat protective for women, um, but I don't think I don't think any any human or animal will do well on its own for long periods of time. I just don't think that we're designed to. I think we're really designed to be social animals. Um, So but interestingly, it seems like isolation is particularly bad for men and men's health because they don't they don't have the protective response of oxytocin right
0: Quick yeah. question. Um, uh, you know, we have, uh, <laughs> my wife calls it cow therapy, but when she comes home, or ha- having a stressful day. She's trained the cows, you know, halter train and everything. So she hugs them. She cleans yes. them. She, j- you know, and, and I can feel it too. Probably not oh, as much awesome. as her, but a big dose. Then we have two rescue dogs, like a big yeah. Great Dane that just cuddles with us on the couch and everything yes. like that. So, uh, you know, I know some people just don't have a significant other or, you know, husband or wife or whatever. Or animal? Can we, is, I think a pet is the ultimate hack because it keeps you on schedule. I have to walk them in the morning and at night. Uh, I mean, they probably optimize our microbiome, but from the context of like pro-social behavior, do you think uh, a pet is contributing to uh, or supplementing oxytocin in a way that a human, uh, could take the place of a human,
1: okay. I, There's actually literature on this. So okay. I spent okay. <laughs> a lot of last year studying the dynamics of oxytocin vasopressin in human health. And I'm just so convinced that oxytocin is nature's medicine. Um, Sue Carter, all of her research is worth reading. She's just a luminary in this space. And she's basically taught me everything I know about oxytocin, but basically when we hold a baby, it literally causes us to release oxytocin so that we will bond to this child so we will keep them yeah. alive social bonds are based on oxytocin. Parent child bonds are are based on oxytocin. Parent husband and wife bonds are based on oxytocin. Um, Familial bonds, sisters. And the reason why we have these social bonds is because, um, and by the way, we need vasopressin too. So vasopressin keeps us protecting each other. we like, it actually helps us defend against um, you know, like uh, sadly, let's let's be real. Like negative outgroups. Like if there is a threat in your environment, or met, let's say there's someone in your community who's been hurting you or stalking someone, vasopressin is what's going to keep you protecting your loved ones from that person. So we need vasopressin and oxytocin. Men are more vasopressin dominant, women are more oxytocin yeah. dominant. Um, but uh, the, interestingly, oxytocin is like this incredible tool that's cardio protective it's mitoprotective it's an antioxidant and it's an antidepressant so anything you can do to socialize in a safe way with people and it's, including touch i mean i get massages regularly um having animals like the way i feel when i'm around my parents dogs i'm visiting them in florida i'm like i really should get a dog because like having a dog is just like so profoundly nourishing cows i mean equine yeah. therapy is like considered a therapy oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in addiction medicine for a reason And I really think that we have completely underestimated the power of oxytocin, the power of social connection to reduce stress and to to improve the way we feel. Um, But we have to nurture our social relationships because basically love is linked to longevity. I mean, there's an entire paper written about this, but I've been really interested in the paradigm of love and the paradigm of the Western model of love, specifically through the lens of evolutionary biology. So specifically we... Helen Fisher is one of my advisors as well. And so she's the most cited woman on love and she has access to this massive match.com data set. She's been studying love right. yeah, for yeah, many years. Yeah. And there's this, um, we have this, in, in, these innate motivational drives and the first one is the sex drive and it's largely driven by our sex hormones, but also driven by the reward we get from having sex, yeah. right? We get pleasure. We get oxytocin. We get, I mean, orgasm leads to oxytocin. We get pleasure. We get dopamine. And so when you have sex with a single person more than once over and over again, there's a, there's a very high likelihood that your body will start, start to fall in love with them. And so romantic love is all about dopamine, all about oxygen. It's all about dopamine, like, which is like, I desire this person. They're significant to me. They're my significant other. They're meaningful. They're like, I feel good around them. And then serotonin is like, wow, I feel so warm and fuzzy. I feel connected. I feel safe. And then norepinephrine is like, I can't eat. I can't sleep. I'm in love. And then you get into the bond of attachment. Right. And this is where you get this feeling of comfort and safety and trust. And, and like you have this person that is going to keep you to help you survive basically. So this whole model of love is basically like the experience we go through in life when we find partnership and we build families. And the, the thing is, is that love is highly adaptive to longevity because you are much more likely to share information and resources and, and like protect those you love. And so yeah. we've really overlooked this as a big part of our our, men- our, our sort of like healthcare institution, right? Like med- medicine today that doesn't really, inc- like love is not something you're taught in medical school. It's I didn't get a, taught tough, any of this. Not <laughs>
0: part of like, a checkup. Yeah, like when you go not. to the doctor, he may ask you like in a vague way, but it's not part of, it's no. probably the overarching, you know, contributor to overall health. And it's really not, um. And there's not really, there's some taboos around like talking about sex and things like that, but I think just general, you can come up with a general relationship questionnaire that you should probably do before you meet your doctor, like in advance. And and then, then, you know, I'm actually working on one.
1: I'm I'm, I'm Yeah, I'm working. I've been working on this for a while, but my students at Princeton that I was working with, um, they all went back to school in the fall. And so it was like a summer project. We didn't, we're, we're not quite done with it, but we're getting closer, but it's basically a social connection questionnaire. Because I, there's so many different ones out there, and they all have different yeah. angles. So what we're doing is we're taking them all and we're summarizing them down to what we think are um, the most predictive questions for social connection. And then we're we're testing this. We're basically gathering a large data set of people answering these questions to see if we can really find the questions that actually help predict social connection of a person. Um, and you know, obviously, we'll want to like publish on this, and and well, we first need to finish it, but. Um, but yeah, it's like, and I also looked into biomarkers of social connection because like, we all have smartphones. And so it's like, there's definitely a company opportunity here for someone to like, someone wants to follow up with me. Like there's there's digital biomarkers too of social connection and there's GPS on our phone. But the problem is, is that most people don't wanna be monitored. And so yeah. most people don't really wanna be like, don't tell me who I've hung out with. Um, so I was like, mm, I wanna do this, but I also like, don't know if people want this because I think a lot of people are afraid of surveillance but um your phone knows who you've been around it knows who you've connected with it knows who you called it knows who you texted so there's like there's definitely an opportunity to actually this could be an entire company is like a social connection tool set
0: so can we hack uh pro-social behavior especially for someone who's maybe uh more introverted or someone who's just like living out in the middle of you know montana and just isolated like on the farm maybe with animals or with with no animals like how or if there's an extreme lockdown again and inevitably there will be uh what are some tips uh that you would advise for people to just you know augment their their pro-social behavior to to get these benefits
1: so Let's say, let's go back to the whole peacetime wartime (laughs) uh, metaphor. So if you're in another pandemic or there's a reason why we have to lock down, um, you really do need a core community of people. And we should all be thinking about worst case scenarios right now. (laughs) So um, everybody should just be assuming that the world is going to continue to be a little bit more chaotic for the next few years. Um, we're going through a massive time of societal change. And so I really, my big, my plan personally, after the pandemic, after, sorry, not the pandemic, but after I finished publishing this book in January is really finding a place in the world to like really build a life and settle down and like find a community that is like where I want to be and and, and where I will feel safe if there is a natural disaster or major country, countrywide disaster, um, I, I'm, I'm not trying to like th- make people worried or anything. Um, but I just, I definitely feel like there's a lot more instability coming. So I think we need, we all need to be finding our core community of people that we can trust. Um, and, and where you will go, if anything really goes wrong, like you need to have a plan. A lot of us didn't have plans during the pandemic. And that was really negative. Um, second thing you need to think about is, is like during peacetime. So we all personally, given the amount of mass shootings in the world, I will not be going to like large parades anytime soon. Um, and I really do try to avoid like public places that are filled with crowds in general. I'm not really, I'm like less interested in crowd-based experiences, but, um, but I personally like throw, um, little parties at my, my house. I have people come over. We use all of my, my recovery tools that I have and we just drink tea and we have snacks and it's like really fun to just connect with people and cuddle. Um, so I'm really big fan of just like social connection in small groups. Um, and then I also would recommend, um, you know, supper clubs and just like setting up dinner parties with your friends, um, going out to dinner with people. I mean, I, I definitely still enjoy that from time to time. Um, gyms are a great place to make, make friends and also a great place to get social connection. Like my gym is, I mean, I work from home, but my gym is a social club in Austin. And so I can work from the gym. I can work from home and i noticed that my mental health is a lot better when i work from the gym because i'm not isolated all day long. so if you can find a work like a co-working space that really feels good and nourishing, i do think that there's still a role of co-working spaces and offices. i think a lot of us have like taken advantage of the work from home, but there's a re- there's a lot of value of being around people during the day. Um, yeah. you know, i think we're underestimating the the effects of potentially work from home on um, on people long-term. I think it's actually better that people have human connection at the office. Um, and then there's like a bunch of other things that you can do. You can have hobbies and join hobbyist clubs. You can go to, um, you know, symphony orchestras and go watch music. I love concerts. I love going to see music yes. and going to do something. So, you know, finding ways to feel safe while you socialize. Is really key given the way the world's going. Um, you know, there was a club that was really recently, you know, had a mass shooting. Like that is not okay. We should all be yeah. lobbying our government to actually create ways to protect us. We should be lobbying for um, funding proper education of police. Um, you know, I, I really think that we we need a massive societal shift towards more civility and more safety so that we can have more social interaction. But if you can't, if you don't feel safe in your environment or you live in big cities. You create a social network of yours around yourself, ten to fifteen people um, who can really help you stay mm-hmm. connected.
0: And you really think you need that tactile uh, stimulation for like the oxytocin for the serotonin, whereas a virtual online group, if, if we're in think- lockdown.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, no. If you're in lockdown, you have no yeah, choice, right? You have no choice, but,
0: right? Yeah. But try to
1: lock down with another person or a few people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Create your cluster of friends. Yeah.
1: <laughs> five to 10 people where you guys know that you are, you know, you're your friends. Yeah. Um, I, I, I personally think the introverts do better with lockdowns than extroverts. I was a mess, but, um, but I don't think Zoom is enough for us to have interaction. I think we need human connection. I think we need human touch. I think there's a lot of touch hunger and I think lack of touch is a huge, huge issue. And we're, we're, you know, there's a lot of evidence that touch is one of the biggest ways that we can feel more oxytocin, but also you can hack touch by just like tickling your arm, just like touching yourself, believe it or not, it can help. So wow. like just giving yourself touch, like just, just giving yourself gentle self-touch. I think it's better with another person. Um, yeah. but you know, like finding ways for you to actually get human touch is really key and, and making yeah, friends yeah. with people who are not afraid to
0: touch. Yeah. Very good advice. Yeah. We're, uh, uh, our lab members are kind of like touchy feely, huggy groups. I love that. Yeah. We yeah. So the <laughs> kind of important
1: like thing you to ask is always ask for consent before touching. That's right. people. <laughs> yeah. well, a lot of people like yeah. don't want to be hugged. And so you just, it's really key to just like, Hey, can I hug you? You know? Yeah. And I think like creating a culture of consent before human touch is just like really protective against all sorts of other problems like sexual trauma and uh, sexual assault. So like, that's a whole nother podcast we're talking about, but um, this has been such a pleasure getting to, getting to know you better and getting to talk about these really interesting topics.
0: Uh, yeah, thanks for sharing your insight. And I can't recommend your book, uh, more, more highly, especially for the female looking to optimize. It's really very unique in that genre, uh, sort of, sort of for metabolic health and mental health and female optimization. And I know uh, I will be gifting it to a number of people. So I I don't really gift too many books, but your book is one that I will be gifting to several people that I know. So uh, thank you for all the work that you put into it. It's obvious that you really, this was a labor of love. Thank you.
1: Uh, I mean, coming uh, from you, this means like, I cannot tell you how important this is because I've been, I've been going through this book so many times, like there's an error here. <laughs>
0: like, yeah, yeah. You know,
1: And it's really nerve wracking. So to have you say that you, you'll actually be gifting it to people means a lot to me.
0: So tell us more about where people can find out more about you and learn about your practice and advising.
1: Sure. Um, check out my website, www.drmolly.co um, at drmolly.co is my Instagram account. You can find me on LinkedIn and um, love for you to support the book. And um, if you wanna learn more about metabolic health and blood sugar monitoring, I've really gone through this in deep detail in the book. And I also have um, a course that I created as an online course that is based on the course I taught at Stanford. Um, So that's also available through my website.
0: Great, well, thank you for sharing all this insight. Totally. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Metabolic Link. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others, leave a comment, leave a review. And also follow us on social media at Metabolic Health Summit. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.